For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to The Range on the Believe Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. I'm Ralph Irvin, and today we are joined by a man who has seen a lot in the world of competitive golf, but he has lived even more than that. He's an author, a journalist, and a storyteller. He has been inside the biggest publications in the sport, and now he heads in a new direction with the Fire Pit Collective. And the odds are pretty good that I've been reading his stuff a lot longer than you have. It's a pleasure to welcome Alan Shipnock to the range. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We have a tradition here on the range, so we start off with a very simple question. When did golf enter into your life? Let's see, I was 12 or 13. No one in my family played golf, but um, my mom had a boyfriend who was into it and so he he kind of uh as i sort of a bonding exercise took me out and uh like every like everyone hit a few good shots and that that kept me coming back for more um one of them as i got a little better i started playing one of my good friends a guy named kevin price and that, that kind of took us through our early teen years and then when i was 16 i started working at quail lodge golf course in, in carmel valley and guy named Ben Doyle was haunting the range. He was a, a golf machine disciple and his, his pupils were, they were swinging rakes and hitting beach balls and he had this buggy full of weird contraptions. And that began my interest in the golf swing and the subsequent summers I worked at Pebble Beach golf links where things escalated quickly as you could imagine. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it was a somewhat unusual entry into the game. I think most, I think for most golfers, it's their dad or their grandfather who kind of gets them into it. But um, I had some other surrogates, and, and I guess the rest is history. I have to imagine growing up in Monterey County, it's kind of like a slippery slope that once you get started in golf, there's so much intoxicants around you that you can't help but just be engrossed by it if you have any inkling in that direction. Well, yeah, I mean, I really, I, in a lot of ways, I learned how to play golf at Pebble Beach. And I, I always say that's like losing your virginity to, you know, Angelina Jolie. It, it, it's all downhill from there. And um, so for sure, the the beauty of the course is just the, the quantity, the challenge, the history. I mean, it's an incredible place to learn the game. But, you know, there's also, I mean, those, those early teenage years, I'd go out to Salinas Fairways with my buddy, Kevin, and that's just a classic, you know, $10 muni that's next to an airport in a rough part of town. And I love that course almost pebble. Like I'm, I've been lucky to play lots of great places, but I'm, I have pretty simple tastes. Like, um, you know, it's got 18 holes and the greens are in pretty good shape and there's a little variety in the design. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. When did writing enter into your world? Uh, way before golf. I mean, I was the editor of the junior high newspaper and um, I had, I had a, a junior high English teacher who she, she was in charge of the journalism class and she kind of recruited me, but she was the first one who kind of made me realize that I had uh, a certain affinity for it. And um, 
but you know, writing begins with reading. And I grew up in a house that was that was really encouraged. And my my parents are big readers, and there's always books and magazines and newspapers. And as I, as I got into sports writing, that was back when um, the National was 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 kind of in its heyday. That that National newspaper mm-hmm. that Frank DeFord edited and. My mom traveled for work a fair amount and you couldn't get it in Salinas, California, where I grew up. It just didn't exist. But when she was traveling through big city airports, she would, she would nab a copy. And, um, my dad had a girlfriend who was an SI subscriber. So I, I started reading sports illustrated cover to cover when I was 11 or 12. And, uh, so writing was always around me. It was always something I was interested in and, it's like anything in life when when you get some positive feedback and some praise and whatever you get you get a pluses on your papers it, it encourages you it keeps you going and um so it was always my favorite subject and i did when i was in in high school i, I started typing for the salinas californian when i was a junior and i'm covering i was a stringer for local high school football and that that grew into other things and i did that all my last two years of high school and was basically their, their number two writer by the time I left. It was, it was a pretty legit newspaper. It had a circulation of, you know, 50,000 or something and went down to UCLA largely because the Daily Bruin was such a fantastic paper and, you know, started working there my first quarter and, and the beats got bigger. And, you know, UCLA in the 90s was just a powerhouse. You know, the football teams were good. Uh, we won a national championship in basketball, all the secondary sports like, you know, volleyball and, whatever we were winning national championships. So it was, it was a great training ground going to a lot of big time athletes, Olympians, future NBA players, NFL players, and uh, just a phenomenal um, place to learn your craft. And I, I got obviously more writing for the paper than I did any, any sitting in a classroom. So <laughs> by, by the time I met, you know, the managing editor of sports illustrated when I was at UCLA, I already, you know, I was already pretty cocky. Like I felt like I knew how to do the job and, um, led to an internship and I got some opportunities to write and I was ready. I'd been doing it half my life. And uh, so, yeah, it's just always been a big part of, of my, my orientation. I mean, I just, I love writing. I love sports. It just, it just felt natural. Well, we were at UCLA at the same time. And I remember reading your stuff. That's amazing. Believe it or not. And I also remember your first byline with sports illustrated because I had subscribed to sports illustrated since I was 10 your name kind of jumps out when you when you're familiar with who's a writer at the daily bruin and suddenly <laughs> yeah. you read well wait wait a minute this this guy was just writing at the daily bruin last <laughs> quarter and now now he now he's writing an article here in sports illustrated yeah it's pretty funny i mean that's one good thing about having a really weird last name there's no doubt like you know one of my si colleagues gary smith there's probably a lot of gary smiths out there there's only <laughs> about 13 ship nugs on the whole planet and I, I know them all very well so um yeah, it was it was a wild ride for sure. And uh, when when I was, you know, when my internship was in 1994, and that that, that was when when Sports Illustrated launched this Golf Plus section, which was going to be supplemental mm-hmm. uh, coverage about the game. Um, to only went to sub- subscribers, you couldn't get on the newsstand. It was it's kind of this insert, and it was the dawn of the the Big Bertha era, and the equipment industry was going crazy. Yeah were really flush and so they, they wanted to advertise and i think as most people understand that ad money drives editorial you know, the more ads are coming in the more pages you have for, for for stories and so all of a sudden they they just literally couldn't fill this golf plus section because they it was conceived as a very small you know four or six pages a week and we we're doing 30 and 40 and so 
I got these opportunities to write that were just unheard of for, you know, basically a 20 year old intern. And, um, you know, the, the movie almost famous, I relate to a lot because some, some of, some of the things that happened to Cameron Crowe who's writing for Rolling Stone as a teenager. It's very analogous to my, my experience at, at sports illustrated. And, um, and like I said, I, I just had this belief I could do it and I, I've been doing it for a long time. And so, you know, you get these opportunities in life, whatever your career is, you know, whether you're a Monday qualifier, all of a sudden is a PGA tour event and you have a chance to change the trajectory of your life or mm -hmm. uh, whatever, whatever your chosen career. And for me, it was that internship and I just took advantage of an incredible opportunity and, and pretty much never left <laughs> until recently. It really was serendipitous that here you were, you weren't even there as a full-time writer, but this opportunity came and you, you knew the content, you knew what to talk about. And so it laid the groundwork for what could be the career going forward. Yeah. And again, it it felt easy to me in the sense that I've been doing it since I was in seventh grade and I absorbed so much great sports writing. I remember my dad getting me the, the best American sports writing book when it first came out. I think that was in 1989 and pouring through those stories and uh you know i subscribed to inside sports and and obviously si and a bunch of other magazines and and i, I read the san francisco chronicle and San Jose mercury news and the monterey herald and since california and like i had just my brain had already absorbed so much writing that i just felt like i knew knew how to do it and i recognized it was this was the big leagues um and there was there was more scrutiny and there's higher standards, but it, it's just, it's the same reason why, you know, a 12 year old girl can qualify for the U S women's open, you know, on some level, it's just golf. You just got to hit the shots and make the putts. And uh, yeah, it's a grander stage and there's more at stake, but ultimately the fundamentals are the same. And then same with writing, you know, whether it's for a rinky dink little local newspaper or for it's the greatest magazine in the world, you have to tell a compelling story and you have to, you have to report the heck out of it and you have to, make it engaging and it doesn't really matter. So, um, you know, I, I think, I think it's just, uh, it's one of those moments and, you know, it's a defining moment in your life. And, and I, I could have totally choked and I'd, you know, I'd probably, who knows what I'd be doing, selling insurance or whatever, <laughs> but I took advantage of the opportunity and I, I just kept going. Do you remember your first big national assignment? Well, so the, the 19, well, let's think about this. I mean, it was really the 1994 masters. I'd only, I'd been an intern for like three months and I'd, I'd been sent down to the Honda classic a couple of weeks earlier to help out Jaime Diaz, legendary golf writer. And uh, actually Phil Mickelson had just broken his leg skiing. Funny enough, Fred couples had blown out his back. So Jaime's like, yeah, write up a little thing about all these injuries going on. And I did, um, he said, wow, that's really good. I'm just going to send it in as it is. So he sent it to the editors and, very graciously told him I had done the work. And I, that was really the first time a lot of them had seen my, had my typing. You know, they, I was kind of coming in as a fact checker and as, as just an intern. To, and um, we had sold an incredible number of ads for that Masters um, Golf Plus issue. So they sent me down there and said, do whatever you want. If you can find a story, great. And so uh, I wound up writing two or three things and got my first byline, really. And that, that, was, that was big. But that first volume was only a one page story. The next week they said, all right, great job, kid. Now, now go do it again. So I went, I went to this, uh, what was called a Nike tour event in Panama city, Florida. And that was, um, kind of the, the Nike tour was still a new idea back then. They were, mm -hmm. they were trying to figure out, is this going to be 
for journeymen to prolong their careers. It's going to be for young guys as a launching pad. There's kind of this tension as for how they were establishing the criteria. What did the tournaments look like and what was the atmosphere? And uh, so I, write, I did like it's 2,500 words. It was a pretty big story. And, um, you know, they, on a super tight deadline, I mean, the tournament ended Sunday night at 7 p.m. The story was due Monday morning at 7 a.m. And I was having computer problems, this little loner Toshiba, and had to send it over the phone line, you know, dial up, you know, mm-hmm. precursor to the internet. It was, it was an absolute mess, but I got the story done. That was probably really the, the beginning of, of everything. When, you know, if you can write a 2000 word story on deadline, um, bring in a lot of different elements and voices. Like, I think that's when the editors really believed in that I could, I could do the job. And then the stories just kept getting bigger and bigger and went to the U S open and ultimately wound up writing this cover story on Ken Griffey Jr. Um, because the magic editor just saw something in my writing and I was pretty much the same age as junior back in 94. And he had some bad mojo with, with uh, his father did actually with, with Tom Berducci, our baseball writers, like a legendary writer, but some, for some reason there was a little coolness there and, and they weren't, they weren't quite playing ball. And so uh, the magic editor thought of me just, I think I was on a little bit of a hot streak and, and uh, he thought in some ways I could relate to Griffey or vice versa. So uh, again, it was just, it was serendipity that, that that assignment wound up with me. Again, took advantage of the opportunity, landed on the cover, and that pretty much secured my employment after uh, college. But I still had five quarters off, so I went back to UCLA, <laughs> kind of renounced the Daily Brew, and like because as I was paying me to do stories, like I would cut class and I'd fly off and um, you know go to tour events uh, on Wednesday mm-hmm. afternoon, and I'd come back and. Um, you know, then I was stumbling in my, my journalism class Monday morning. It was, I was a little unmotivated my last year and a half there, um, as you might Five quarters of senioritis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> in fact, I remember I had this persnickety journalism instructor, and the assignment was we had to write, like, you know, whatever, 1,500-word story about this, that. And I plopped down the new SI on her desk with my body. I said, does this count? And she's like, no. You have to still write and do the assignment. I was like, Jesus, this is ridiculous. This is like a published piece from last week. And um, so, yeah, it was a little senioritis there. But um, anyway, but without it, I give a lot of credit to Daily Brew. And I mean, those those two years that I was grinding, I, I learned a heck of a lot about writing on deadline and, and working a beat and, you know, developing relationships and um, finding compelling story ideas. And it, it was a really important part of my development. Even the part about just having to travel and manage your time and be a college age person on the road and yet have to be responsible enough to turn in the work, forget the writing, just that part taught you so much. Yeah, no doubt. And the funny thing was, since I was an intern and not an employee, I was not eligible for a corporate American express card. And so I actually had my, my ASU CLA visa, which had a credit limit of like 500 bucks. And I was, you know, I was a typical student, right? And so I was calling them every week. Hi, I'm trying to check out the four seasons. Can you please quadruple my limit? And I wasn't old enough to take rental cars. So mm-hmm. I was like taking taxis everywhere. And this is before smartphones. I mean, I was always, I was always lost. Um, and, you know, it was, really, it was a mess. I mean, trying to, trying to research things from the road because the, the, the office in, in New York City had an incredible library with a, a staff of librarians who were always cutting out articles from newspapers and, you know, making photocopies of books. And the, the resources in the office are terrific. When you were cut off from that, it was like, 
geez, how am I going to learn about the 1972 U.S. Open? I mean, you'd actually have to like call some old USGA dude who was there and interview him, and then you'd have to fact check that, and you'd have to call it microfiche at the local library. I mean, the kids today have no idea how good they have it. With, you know, the world is at your fingertips, but that was not always the case. And right. I'm not that old, but I did sort of bridge the divide between the internet age and, and the old way of doing things. I always felt as a reporter that it's great, it's crucial to not root because it would cloud my vision. But being in the midst of a celebration or the misery, as it were, I would allow it to consume me so I could have a better understanding of what was really going on. If everyone was excited around me, I'd allow myself to get excited so I could feel what that celebration was like. And when you reflected on your 25 years of the Masters and told some of the stories with the celebrations, the post-events, I felt like that's what you were trying to do was the only way you could really tell the story was to immerse yourself in the celebration or in the in the tragic defeat, as it were. Yeah, you have to let yourself feel the emotion. And it's, I mean, reporters have tons of rooting interests, but it's it's usually not their favorite team or their favorite player, they're rooting for the story. What's the best story or who do I have the best information or the best access? You want that person to win because you can write a better story. And so it's not really a personal thing or it's not about the team or the school or whatever. It's more about how can you do your job most effectively? But yeah, there's always rooting interests and it's definitely folly to try and wall yourself off from the drama all around you. I mean, you your job is to capture it and to and to help people relive it and feel it again. So, you know, I, I love running around at you know Sunday afternoons at the big tournaments and with the fans and the crazies and uh, it just inspires you. And those those are ultimately the, you are a proxy for the fans. Like you're there to ask the questions they wish they could and to go places they can't go. And you always have to remember that you're not writing in a vacuum. You're writing for people to read it and um, the readers are paramount. So yeah, uh, it, you want to feel their passion. We get into trouble as if, you know, if I were to cover UCLA USC football game and I would just trash the Trojans because of, you know, 30 year old beliefs, like, okay, that's probably not professional, <laughs> but um, I could definitely go to that football game and root for USC. If for whatever reason, I had much better material on that team. Uh, maybe the coach let me in the locker room, maybe the star player took me out to dinner, you know, whatever it is. Um, so in, in that regard, it, I can very much separate my, my personal feelings from the story at hand. You wrote your first book, Bud, Sweat and Tease. How did that concept come about? And how did you execute writing a book while you're essentially working as a reporter at the same time? Yeah, it was, the writing was easy in that I just remember thinking, well, I know how to write. I know how to structure an article. I know how to write three thousand words. I just have to do that over and over again. You know, each, each chapter is essentially, in my mind, was like a magazine piece. And mm -hmm. um, but of course, they all connected and they all they all were part of an overarching story. But the the writing wasn't that intimidating to me. Uh, it was more the idea. Was, I mean, I've been wanting to write a book forever. Like that was always a dream of mine, but never really, you know, I didn't know what what the story was or what it should be or and so i, I went to the the kemper open in see, 1999 and this total mm -hmm. unknown rookie named rich beam um who had 
you know, back in those days, the structure of pro golf has changed, but you could play your way onto the tour if you went to Q school. And he went first, second, and third stage, which was very rare. Usually you'd be exempt through the first the first stage based on your status as things you've done in the game. Very few players made it through all three stages. It's so Darwinian. And and yet he was having a terrible rookie year. I mean, it's like 200th on the money list. He missed five cuts in a row. And he came out of nowhere to win this tournament thanks to one of the great caddying jobs ever by a kid named Steve, Steve Duplantis who'd just been fired by Jim Furyk. And that it's funny because my mom was living in Maryland at that time and I was staying with her that week. And I, I went back into her, I was sitting at her dining room table and I wrote the story in like two hours, which was really fast for 2000 words, but just the energy of these two characters who were so colorful and the way their trajectories had just, uh, you know, that was Duplantis' first tournament working for, for Beam. Mm-hmm. There was a desperation to both of them and their journeys and, and they just met exactly the right moment and they were such colorful dudes and just the story poured out of me and my editor loved it. And there was just some energy around that story that I felt. And he, and so my editor was Jim Harry. He said, I, I love this guy beam. What a character. Why don't you go to us open qualifying in a couple of weeks? And if he makes it through, we'll blow it out as in our us open coverage. So I did go to qualifying it was in Memphis. He wound up not playing well, but Duplantis's, um, stripper slash nanny was there and beam was partying <laughs> like a rock star and there was all these they had various friends and hangers on and i was like i've been on tour long enough to know this was a very unusual collection of characters and both of these guys were totally uninhibited which is obviously gold for a reporter and right. so um but rich didn't make it through qualifying that story kind of went away but i had all this stuff in my notebook and then at that U.S. Open at Pinehurst in 99, I was having dinner with Michael Bamberger, great friend and mentor. And he's like, man, I read that Rich Beam story. That was incredible. And um, uh, he said, there's, this seems like there's more there to that story. And I told him, well, I just went through qualifying. And I was telling him all this stuff. And obviously, I was quite animated about it. And as we're talking, he like gets out a, a pen. He writes down a number. This is an editor at Simon Schuster. He's like, this would, this would be a great book. And and like, oh, wow. Okay. And so I, um, I actually, you know, I was not an unknown quantity. I was writing for Sports Illustrated, but if you're going to try and sell a book, you need, you need to have a, usually a sample chapter or two. And so I mm-hmm. took that, that qualifier and all that material and I turned it into a chapter and I sent it to this editor um, at Simon Schuster. But oh, this took a little while. I remember I was, I was at the, I was at the uh, Ryder Cup in, in Boston at Brookline. So this is now, you know, three months later. And mm-hmm. I was on the, the media shuttle and my phone rang and it was this editor named Jeff Newman. He's like, I love the chapter. Let's do the book. And I was like, Holy cow. And um, so, <laughs> uh, so then I just jumped into it. And um, so, you know, again, like if Jim Harry didn't have those instincts to send me to that U S open qualifier. And if Michael Bamberger didn't have sort of to see what was there, it may have never happened, but I was lucky to have people around me who were friends and mentors and, and kind of gave me a kick up the backside when I needed it. So, um, yeah, so that's how that book came about. And came out in 2001 in January. Got a lot of nice reviews and sold a decent number of copies. And, um, and then, of course, the next year, Beam wins the PGA Championship and he outduels Tiger Woods. And the whole world's like, who is Rich Beam? Wait, somebody wrote a book about the guy? And um, so then it just went crazy and, you know, became a bestseller. And I did, I was on you know, Larry King and who, who, whatever. And, 
uh, it was just, she was such a rags to riches kind of story and he was such a likable character. And he, even when he won the PGA, he was still largely unknown quantity and to have this treasure trove of material was very valuable for reporters. And um, so, yeah, the, the book had a long life I and mean, it's still in print 20 years later. It's pretty incredible. And just because not only was, was Beam a great story and was, was C. Duplantis a really interesting dude, but I had the kind of access that's almost impossible now. I mean, players are so guarded in the, in the social right. media age and they're surrounded by their handlers and uh, you know, Beam had an agent, but this guy was totally checked out. Like, I never even dealt with it. We just hung out. I'd call Rich up and say, "Hey, let's go. Let's. I'm going to come to El Paso, and then we'll let's let's hang out for a few days or whatever it was." And, um, you know, now so much money, and each of these guys has so many people around them. It would be really, really hard to write that kind of book again. So it was just the again a confluence of events that, that worked out great for me. And it opened the gates to really show you that you could write a book and, and you've been able to follow that up over the years with a number of different novels of different sorts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm working on a couple projects right now. So, right, I mean, writing books is wonderful. It, the challenge is that I also have kids and I have a day job and I have, you know, a life. And if, if you get to the point where you're so successful and all you have to do is write books, that's an amazing luxury. I'm, I'm not that level. So to try and balance my, the demands of my day job and get the books done, it, it's not easy. It's really, um, you know, it would obviously be wonderful if I got to that level or maybe that, you know, when my kids are out of college or whatever, and I can kind of transition to that. I mean, that would be a dream if you just always be working on a book, but um, when, you, when you're combining that with all the other elements, that, that's the challenge. So I've, you know, I've, I've published six, I have two more that are probably going to come out next year. And, it's a, it's a healthy number, but that's, I would love to just keep writing more and more and more. I mean, it's so satisfying. You have so much freedom and there's, I mean, there's deadlines, but not really. And you have an editor, but not really. You can say whatever you want and you can, you can immerse yourself in the subject. And it's just, it's the kind of freedom and the expansiveness that we all dream about. Well, one area that helps in doing that is diversifying your subject matter. And you've actually written books that, have nothing to do with golf or you've worked on things that are completely unrelated to golf. And in a way I got to imagine that's kind of liberating. Yeah, for sure. So one, uh, this book is going to come out next April of 22. It's, um, I mean, I met the guy through golf. His name is Jack Grant Colas, but it's not anything like a golf book. He, he's, he's just a, a guy who lives here locally in Monterey Peninsula. And, uh, but his pregnant college sweetheart was on United 93 and um, and so it's kind of Jack's story and everything he's been through and how he's pulled himself out of you know the, such a dark hole and it's a really beautiful book it has a happy ending because he finally kind of refound love and got remarried and has been able to make peace with you know losing his wife Lauren and, and what he's done to honor her memory and it's it's very bittersweet but there's there's so much beauty in it and yeah there's a few diversions because Jack did play some some junior golf and this and that but it's it's really, that's not what the book's about. And it, it was neat to, to get into some other subject matter for sure. And um, I, it's, it's a balancing act because golf is what I'm known for. It's where I have the expertise and the contacts. And, uh, but I would like to get into other things as well. So I think that's probably, you know, as I look, as I look into the, the next act of my 
career, you know, however many years away that is, that would, that would be fun. You know, I coach high school basketball and I love basketball. There's something there for sure. I think, but I keep going with that. You just, you never know what, what, what's going to, what, what's going to happen. I mean, I, I met Jack totally through happenstance. And so, yeah. um, we shall see, or, but I'm certainly open to it. Or what inspiration you may just trip over one day. Just, <laughs> just, you never know where it's going to come from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You wrote a piece this spring uh, marking 25 years of the Masters and talk about ruffling some feathers there at Augusta National, but you really ruffled feathers in November of 2017 when you delivered a California-sized earthquake to the Ryder Cup world by declaring that the U.S. was set to dominate for years to come. What inspired that line of thinking besides just thinking that's what was going to happen? Well, you know, they... They, they kicked butt in the preceding Ryder Cup and President's Cup and this incredible core of young talent, you know, the, the Spies and the Kepkas and the Justin Thomases, uh, you know, Dustin Johnson is still at that point, barely 30, uh, just an, an insane amount of firepower. Patrick Reed, you can go on down the list. And whereas the core of the European team was, was aging and starting to fade away, you know, the Stensons and Sergio's and Rose's and Westwood's and Poulter's, they're all pushing 40 or more. And just demographically, it seemed like the U S was set up to go on a really extended run of excellence. And, uh, you know, the, the point of writing opinion pieces is to uh, stir up conversation and, mm-hmm. and, evoke some emotion and <laughs> that piece certainly did. I mean, I knew it because the European Ryder cup folks are just totally crazy. And, and I, I say that with affection. Um, they care so much. So I, I knew that they were going to be unhappy, but it was, and I wrote it with a little bit of hyperbole. I mean, it was a little bit of a wink. Like I, I don't, you know, I think I it was like an obituary for the Ryder cup because it was going to become so boring because the U S was going to win them all. Obviously um, there was a little wink in that, but the secret sauce for Europe is that they have better captains than, than the Americans do. And they have a much more efficient system for promoting leadership within the ranks. And they, um, they have this, this, this natural camaraderie and this bonding because a lot of them grew up playing on national teams together. And, and they, they bring those units together. You know, the Spaniards play the Spaniards, the English guys play the English guys. And that, it's like these little Navy SEAL units like that, um, that Paul Edginger <laughs> used for his pod system. And uh, so, and who, you know, you just, I still, still think if the U.S. wins at Whistling Straits, they're going to go on a long run here. I honestly believe that despite the <laughs> egg they laid in Paris, they still have such a, I mean, six of the top seven in the world rankings right now are Americans. 11 of the top 16 in the world rankings, 11 are Americans and there's only four euros. And, they have a tremendous advantage in, in talent and depth. That's indisputable. But Europe just finds a way, Ryder Cup after Ryder Cup, to elevate their play. And now you have, you know, Brooks and Bryson are sniping each other. Brooks and DJ, you know, had some sort of dust up in Sunday night in Paris. Patrick Reed is a cancer. I mean, it's like the, the U.S. may actually find a way to screw this up again, even with the home field <laughs> advantage. But if... And if they do, it's not going to, it's going to be less about the golf than the team room and interpersonal. And I admittedly underplay that in my analysis. Cause I just felt like at some point, you know, you take, you take enough great players, they should be able to get it done, but that's just not how, 
how it's been working lately. So we shall see. Luckily, it's a long-term prediction. So we need another 10 years for anyone can say conclusively if I was right or wrong. And that, the good news is I can keep skating for a little while. The bad news is I have to deal with this forever, Ralph. Like it's, you know, it's <laughs> like this. Um, I mean, it's fun. I enjoy the banter, but let me tell you, if the U.S. loses, like my Twitter mentions on Sunday night, Wishing Straits are going to be a dumpster fire. And, uh, but it's all, it's all good. I mean, it's fun. But, it just adds another layer to the whole thing. And, you know, I, I, I don't mean this in like a obnoxious way, but it's all part of like the Ryder Cup is show business, right? It's just for fun. Mm -hmm. We're not curing cancer. National security is not at risk. And in some small way, my story has played into that. It's just one more thing to talk about and it's to, for people to laugh about and to get, to get fired up about. So uh, while I would like the U.S. to win, the fact that they, they got killed in Paris just turned up the volume on the whole thing and it makes it kind of more fun heading into this Ryder Cup. You just covered the PGA Championship at Kiowa Island and saw Phil make history, and now people are calling for his inclusion into the U.S. side a week after he was 115th in the world. I said on my show last week that's a ridiculous idea at this point, but am I off base? Is, is he the guy to bring it all together, or does he blow it up? Well, no, I mean, Phil's a great influence in the team room. He, he's been the de facto playing captain for years. And um, the young guys love him. The old guys respect him. I mean, I, I still, in some ways, would prefer him to just being a, a vice captain. Than, but and I, I asked Stricker this at, at the Ocean course at, at Kiwa. I said, you know, when this was like, I think on Friday, Phil was playing great, but he hardly had won it yet. I said, how much, how much weight can you put on one week? I mean, Phil hadn't, hadn't cracked an egg in a year. And he right. said, well, this, this week means more than most would because obviously it's PJ championship and playing under that spotlight is huge. But also Pete Dye designed the ocean course and Whistling Street and, and Stricker's mind, they're very similar courses and asked very similar questions and, and had shot values that, um, that, that really translate from one venue to the other. So I, I think there's no doubt that Phil's going to be a pick. And again, this is an exhibition match. So he's the biggest star in the game right now. How can you leave him at home? Like from, from a standpoint of TV ratings, fan interest, playing in the U.S., of course people want Phil to be on the team. But the challenge is how do you use him? And, you know, like Lay Golf National now, where, where the last Ryder Cup was, and, he was, and Phil was a captain's pick. He played terribly. It was just the wrong course for him, and Furyk kept sending him out. And so I think, you know, if you're Stricker, you have to tell Phil, listen, you're going to be almost a de facto vice captain. We need you in singles and we'll see what happens the first two days. Don't get your hopes up. You know, like if you come in and you're in a protracted slump, like you were heading in Paris, like just because you're Phil Middleton doesn't mean you're going to play four matches. Like we, we have to be smart about this. You, the cult of personality around Phil cannot overshadow everything else. Because I mean, it's one of the reasons why, the last 20 years, the U.S. Has, has gotten their butts kicked because Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, and Jim Furyk were on every team, and all three have terrible records in the Ryder Cup. They're great right. players. Whatever reason, their games just didn't translate to the Ryder Cup. And so you have to be honest about that with Phil. You've had plenty of chances to prove yourself, and you've pretty much played crap for a quarter <laughs> century. So like, don't think you're going to come in here and play five matches, old man. Like, you know, It's great to have you on the team, and hopefully we can we – can, you know, like a you – know, you're a, a, a home run hitting pinch hitter. We could bring in off the bench if we need you, but I think the other guys have to carry the load. I look at Phil as somebody who wants to fleece you for every penny you have. But I look across the pond, I see the Montes, the Faldos, the the Poulters. 
They're guys that want to rip your golfing soul out of you. Yeah. And those two aren't exactly in the same plane in terms of competitiveness. It's true. I, I agree. And beyond that, it, it's hard for American fans to understand how much the Ryder Cup means to the European tour and the players there. Without the money from the Ryder Cup, the European tour might have gone out of business. So from just from a to give these guys their livelihood and place to play, it's massively important. And then, you know, three of the four major championships were played in, in, in the U.S. Everything about the game is tilted towards America. And mm -hmm. um, we have all the world ranking points. We have the money and we have the exposure. And it just builds up this resentment. Even though a lot of these guys live in Florida, they still, you know, speaking of the Europeans, they still carry that, that chip on their shoulder. And Oh, yeah. No, I, I lived in Orlando and would talk to them about playing home games at Bay Hill. And they're like, this isn't my home. Yeah. No, no. I may live here, but this isn't my home. Exactly. And and that competitiveness you talked about, I mean, obviously, Seve Ballesteros embodied it. Monty carried it forward. Faldo, Poulter. Like, the, they rally the teams around them in a way that, you know, Tiger was an introvert. and He was his brooding presence. And was he the greatest player of all time? Probably. But... He didn't rally the team around him. And Phil, uh, even though he's got a big personality and he sucks up a lot of oxygen, he, you know, you go out there and you get your butt kicked. It's hard to be the team leader when you're losing five and four, you know, on Friday morning. And Jerk, again, kind of quiet, didn't have the personality. To, he wasn't really a leader of men. Whereas, you know, the, the Europeans just have these galvanizing figures, you know, like Lee Westwood owns that team. And, uh, he's going to be massively important to the European side this year. And it's just different personalities. It's different culture. It's just that secret sauce that Europe has, you know, time after time. I hear you're maybe working on a book on uh, one of these people that we've just been discussing. Oh yeah, no, I'm right. I'm, I've, I've been working <laughs> on a Phil biography going back to last fall. And um, I told Simon and Schuster, you know what, let's bump it back. This is like months ago. I've got, you know this new business venture with the fire pit collective I've, I've got a lot going on and i just need more time on the book and my money wins on sunday night at kiwa my editor sends me a text books due december 1st i was like oh my god so <laughs> it might kill me but i mean it's the right time to bring it out it's you know phil's the biggest star on the sport and he's not going anywhere now and uh for a good long while so i get it but it's the leisurely, you know, noodling for years, like that just went out the window. And, um, um, but it's all good. I, in some ways it's better to have a, a, a tighter deadline because you can't just get lost in a notebook and, and just go and, I mean, I could spend a decade writing this book. It, I, maybe it's better as a sprint than a marathon and it, this will force me to be focused and, and really tell it in a tight, compelling way. And, We'll see if I make it at December 1st. <laughs> Talk about rooting for a story. Now I know why you want Phil on that Ryder Cup team. Yeah. Well, That's your capper. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, he'll be there no matter what. Like, he would have been a captain anyway. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's Hollywood ending, man. He's he'll, he's probably going to he's probably gonna make the, the clinching putt, and it's just going to it's gonna be epic. But uh, Or he's going to go 0-4 and be the GOAT again, and that works too. I mean, either way – thing about phil is he always inspires emotions never boring and love him or hate him he makes you feel something and that's that's rare i can't help but look at your career as something akin to a golf bag we love our clubs we use and abuse them and take care of them they travel with us we have a connection 
But eventually, we always face a choice. Do we want something better? Do we want to make a technological leap? And you had a solid setup at Sports Illustrated. You were established at golf.com, but you made the decision and moved to, to join Matt Janella with the Fire Pit Collective that you just mentioned. How did you, uh, how'd you get there? How'd you deal with those decisions and get to where you've gotten now? Yeah, no, SI was incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm so blessed. I had, you know, basically a quarter century there, but due to the changing market forces and some, some missteps along the way, I mean, the magazine was struggling and, uh, and the parent company time Inc was really struggling. And so they, in 2018 decided to divest golf magazine, golf.com. And at that point I was writing for all three platforms because we were the same corporate family. And I had to decide if I was going to stay at SI or I was going to go with the golf properties. And for a variety of reasons, it was better to go with the golf properties and it was the right decision at the time. And I, I don't regret it, but, um, cause SI is, really struggled since then but mm -hmm. the the ownership management situation at golf magazine got complicated and i couldn't really do the work i wanted to do and i was i was looking for my next landing spot and matt and i you know, we go back to the mid 90s when we were both at, at si and we've been best friends ever since and we've played golf all around the world and i've always admired the energy he brings to his storytelling and um He's a, has a unique ability to connect with people in the game and just has a phenomenal network of friends and supporters. And, um, you know, Matt was in an analogous situation at, at uh, Golf Channel where mm -hmm. he felt stifled and felt like he didn't believe in the future of, of the company. And so he, he took a buyout and he had all of 2020 to, um, to start building, the, you know, his sort of vision of, of his future, which was fire pit podcast and a great website and um and he, he did a phenomenal job getting those things off the ground we kind of went as far as you could go as a one-man band and so we started talking and realizing like we had kind of special opportunity we combined our talents because the match graded pods and video storytelling typing is obviously my specialty but he he can he can write i can also do podcasts like we, we were different enough but we were complementary and um so very quickly we decided, you know, I was going to become part of, of this and it was going to go from kind of a boutique operation to something bigger. And when we announced I was coming aboard in, in March, things went kind of crazy as far as people would be investors and contributors wanting to be a part of it because they, they saw the possibilities and it's been a wild ride ever since. And I feel like I've got an MBA. I've learned so much about the business world and we've taken on a lot of investors and we've really been able to, um, build out the company on we already have seven employees and things are going gangbusters uh, so it was the best thing ever happened to me professionally and it's really things were uncertain at, at golf magazine now i can i can clearly see what the next 10 years of my my work life is going to be like and it's really exciting to do things my own way and to help shape the whole company and to have autonomy and you know even i was always so frustrated every website that I worked for, they look terrible. Just all the ads and the clutter and the embedded mm. links. And you just felt like you're under assault when you're reading a story. And so now I have total control of how my stories can be presented and they're just clean and elegant. And it's such a more pleasant reading experience. And that's like super important to me. Um, so, so really the first time I'm empowered to, to do those things. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, um, it's been great. It's been, it's been a phenomenal 
um, education and I've never worked so hard as I had in the last three or four months, but it's fun to build something and do it with a great friend. And I've got this whole little community of, of people we're working with and the, the camaraderie and the team spirit is, just, is fantastic. So I'm, I'm super happy with how it's all played out. And you're doing a weekly podcast with Christina Kim called Full Send. And that's got to be fun because you two work together in a book swinging from my heels. So you get to rekindle a great relationship while staying relevant to golf as the weeks pass. Yeah, I mean, I wrote the first big story about Christina way back in 2004 when she was, you know, a teenager on the LPGA. And we've been pals ever since. And we've had lots of meals and we played golf. And anyone who knows Christina knows she's just an incredibly big personality. And she has an opinion mm-hmm. about everything. And she's wicked smart and just fun. And so, um, the you know, unfortunately, Ralph, in, in the, the sports podcasting game, especially golf, all the podcasters look like me and you. And it's always been a i felt for a while like we need more voices in the game and there's there's really no lpga players who are doing a weekly podcast is even as the sport's gotten more and more popular and has this huge international following uh so i knew right away that i want to do that with christina and but she's you know she's she has a foot in both worlds because she she's an announcer for pj tour live and so she's mm-hmm. become very close to the men's game as well and she's just an eclectic person with a lot of in- different interests and she's very open about everything from, you know, her mental health to struggles on the golf course to whatever it may be. And even though we're both Northern Californians, we see, we see things differently in, in a lot of ways. That, that's great. I mean, it adds a, a certain amount of, you know, friction to the whole thing. And she's inside the ropes and I'm, I'm looking, uh, I'm on the outside looking in. And so we just have different perspectives. And I, I think we're on episode seven now and it's just getting better and better. Like our chemistry and the, the things we want to talk about, like it's been, it's been really fun. And it's, I think it's added a lot to the discourse of, of the game, not just the women's game. So yeah, we're enjoying that. I, I just, I reanimated just this week, my ask Alan column where you know, readers send in questions and it's just a fun way to interact with the golf community. That's going to be every week. That'll drop Monday mornings. Um, and working on a few bigger projects for the fire pit website and I'm, I'm, I'm you know i'm helping to edit ryan french with he does incredible content from all the monday qualifiers and we're, we just have a lot of things in the works so it's it's a great mix of being forward facing and doing the work i i care about also helping build this community and help others kind of produce their best work so i'm I, i'm every every work day is a lot of fun let's see we've got you christina matt Oh, and me. That's right. We're all from Northern California. What, what do you, what do you know? <laughs> it all happens. I mean, it's really the golfing capital of the world. We, uh, you know, obviously we have the women's open here. We've, we've got uh, various major championships coming through. The Walker Cup's going to be at Cypress Point in 25. And there's, mm-hmm. we're in the middle of about a seven, eight year run where Northern California is the center of the golf universe. Uh, obviously we just had the, the PGA at Harding Park. Uh, it just keeps going. So it's, yeah. it's great fun. I mean, I'm, I love being able to drive to these events, but it's also showcasing incredible golf courses and just a uh, really special part of the, the, the golfing world. We always wrap up our talks here on the range and normally we're talking equipment. So we jump into the Wayback machine and ask you to go through your lifetime golf bag. What is that one club that jumps out to you that has that special sentimental? I can see you already have an answer yeah. that it yeah. means that it's much like, to you. It was like circa 19, 
89, 90. Um, do you remember the Ginty Seven Wood? It, um, it was, it was a persimmon head, but it had a little, um, the sole was metal and you like out of the rough or any kind of lie where the ball was sitting down, like you could just launch it. I, I wish I could find one. I mean, from like 175 to 200 yards, it was so money. And, um, I think it's G I N T Y the Ginty. And I, I haven't seen one in decades, but that was like such a cheater club back then. Um, my, my college roommate played for the UCLA golf team for a while. And he had this, this crazy prototype, like 13 degree, I guess it was a two wood really. And, um, I can't even remember the name, but I hit more good drives of that thing, you know, back in the day with the small heads. I, I mean, I've got a few, my first Pell's 64 degree wedge, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was a game changer for me. Um, and now I have an Epic flash driver that I absolutely love and I, I'm bombing and that's probably two and a half years old, but I don't think I'm ever going to give it up. Like I can't imagine a, a hotter driver than that. So the, there's plenty. I had a zebra putter. Do you remember the zebra putters? Like, sure. Yeah, I took that out of the. I bought that out of the pro shop at Pebble on the steep employee discount, and um, I use that <laughs> forever. Um, yeah, you know, right now I'm, I'm. I might be the 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 second most prominent person in the golf world to use single length golf clubs. <laughs> Obviously, there's a little gap between me and Bryson, but um, I've been using single length for four years on my irons. Mm-hmm. I love it. I mean, I've written about this a few times. And yeah. I get um, I get a lot of questions from folks on social media who are thinking about it or curious, and um, I love the single length. I mean, to me, it's like you have thirteen clubs, not counting your putter, and every single one of them, the the shaft is a little bit longer, the head's a little different weight. You have to stand a little closer, or farther from the ball. I mean, this just simplifies everything. You just have to make the same swing over and over. When I go to the driving range, I can literally pull any iron out of my bag. And it feels and looks the same. You know, obviously the the loft is different. But that's it. I mean, the weight, the length, the the the, uh, the shape of the head. I mean, it's I love it because with with four kids and all this work stuff going on, I never get to the range. Like um, I'm always just trying up on the first tee, trying to find it. And I've eliminated a major variable because the difference between swinging the three iron and a sand wedge, and they're, they're like diff- they're such radically different clubs. You know the the chunkiness of the head and the length of the shaft and how close you have to stand to the ball. Like it's dramatic. And like, oh, I've taken that away. And so um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a total believer. And I, I've honestly had more good four and five irons in the last, like say two years and the rest of my life combined. I mean, it's really a big difference in the long irons for me. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely a believer. Chalk you up for team uh, Bryson then. <laughs> I mean, I wrote a big story on Bryson in 2015 and went out to this dumpy little public course where uh, Dragonfly, where he was playing out in the Central Valley. And I, I know the real Bryson, and I've, I've seen it way before all the um, I don't, nonsense might be too strong a word, but all the weirdness set in. And so um, I, I, deep down, I like Bryson. I think he's an interesting guy, and I like what he brings to the game. But um, there's now a sort of a performative aspect that it can be distracting, but he's, he's an interesting character and we need more of those in the game. I think. 
Well, Alan, I've been reading your work for a long, long time, and whether it was the Daily Bruin or an article celebrating the nation's top athletic school, yeah, I remember that one. Oh, yeah, that was fun. Countless golf features or your many books, uh, I've been a big, big fan. Your work has brought so many people inside the ropes and inside the closed-door life that can be golf. Thanks for your phenomenal years of work, and thanks for joining us here on The Range. No, this is a fun chat. Thanks for having me. That was Alan Shipnuck, and I kid you not, I've been trying to book a conversation with him since we first conceived of the range a year ago, and I could have kept him here for a few hours and still not asked everything. That was special. I hope you enjoyed that talk as much as I did. Before we go, I need to weigh in on this continued nonsense with Brooks Kepka and Bryson DeChambeau. All through last year, I celebrated the fact that while we lacked the excitement of a live crowd, we also did not have to worry about the general nonsense that can come from galleries. Now, people with my perspective are being proven right time and time again. From fans knocking down wayward balls, saving players from harrowing situations at the PGA, to this recent Brooksy garbage, I am yearning for fans to act like caddies. Show up, keep up, and shut up. I get it, people don't like Bryson, essentially because he's good and different and hits the ball a long way. Did he rile up Brooks Kepka during an interview? Sure. Did Kepka putt like he was using a crowbar all week at Kiowa Island all on his own? Yep. Did he blow a chance at a major entirely on his own? Yep again. Did he blame fans at the end of that tournament? He sure did. So, yeah, he's upset. But now he does this? What's up, guys? It's Brooksy. Just wanted to say, hey, thank you guys for the support. I heard a bunch of you were shouting my name at the golf tournament today. I know I'm not playing, but thank you guys for showing support. And if your time was, I don't know, say cut short at the golf tournament today, uh, DM Michelob Ultra, and we're going to be giving out 50 cases of beer for the first 50 people um, in case their time was cut short, had any trouble at the tournament. But just as a thank you for showing support. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You know, it's funny. It sure sounds a lot like this. Wow, that couldn't have gone any better. Instead of hitting you... Yeah. He hits Bob Barker. <laughs> Good, huh? So I'll see you at the next tournament, right? Oh, no, that won't be necessary. This was on national TV. What I'm going to say next may offend some of you. And if it does, good. Because if it offends you, then you probably sound a lot like this. I, I thought we were going to be friends. Oh, we're friends. We are. I just got to go. Okay, well, I'll be at the Red Lobster in case you change your mind, shooter. That's right. All you jackasses out there taunting Bryson with your Brooksy chants are idiots like Joe Flaherty played in Happy Gilmore. And just like Shooter McGavin, Brooks Kepka has no other use for you. He is on the record as not being a fan of golf or anything in the golf lifestyle. So why do golf fans side up with a guy to play foot soldiers in his efforts to bully a fellow tour pro? Here's an idea. If Brooks had issues, he could take them up with Bryson directly on or off the course. But for supposed golf fans to jump in the fray as mindless idiots for hoots and hollers only goes to show that they, or maybe you if applicable, are what is wrong with tournament golf. The game can be old and it can be stale and it is ready for improvement. But things like this only go to show that bringing classlessness into the sport is no way to make it better. Show some respect for the game and for yourself. We continue to share what's new in golf equipment and you can learn about it with the Golf Spotlight. We are dropping new features all the time looking at clubs, accessories, footwear, and more. 
go to thegolfspotlight.com. Click on the YouTube subscribe button and turn on those notifications so you never miss one of our exclusive features. There is always a lot to catch up on. Stay up to date on the range by following us on Instagram at the Golf Spotlight. We're also on Twitter at Golf Spotlight. We welcome your comments everywhere. You've listened this far, so subscribe to the range on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or iHeart. We have new shows dropping every Wednesday. That'll do it for this episode of The Range, so let's hit the course, but remember to keep your wits about you. There's stories all around us. Collect them and enjoy them for years to come. And we will talk to you next time, right here on The Range. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.